Hello, welcome to the Science for Policy podcast. My name is Toby, and today I'm joined by Professor Ortvin Ren. Professor Ren is Scientific Director of the International Institute for Advanced Sustainability Studies in Potsdam, near Berlin in Germany. He holds a frankly bewildering range of professorships at different universities, including Affiliate Professor of Risk Governance at the wonderfully named Beijing Normal University. He also has an equally bewildering range of specialisms, including risk governance, as I mentioned, sustainability, complexity, science communication and participation, and science and technology studies more broadly. And as well as all this, or perhaps because of all this, he's also one of Europe's leading lights in the academic study of science advice to policymakers, having notably chaired the 2019 SAPEA Evidence Review Report for European Commissioners entitled Making Sense of Science for Policy Under Conditions of Complexity and Uncertainty, which is basically advising policymakers about how science should advise policymakers. And he's also, it goes without saying, been in the science advisor hot seat himself many times, both in Germany and at a European level. So, Odven, it's a pleasure to welcome you to the podcast. Well, thank you very much, Toby. I'm very happy to be here. So your name is among a, a few, I can say, uh, without exaggeration, that come up all the time when I talk to people about science advice. So with some guests, I have a clear idea when we start recording of exactly the area I want to talk about. But with you, I think your interests are so broad that the field is is kind of wide open. So so much of what you do is so obviously relevant that I'm not quite sure where to jump in. Perhaps I should start by asking you to say a bit about your interest and perhaps where you see the most interesting topics with regards to science advice for policy. Yeah, thank you very much, Toby. I always like to be broad in the fields that I'm working on because I think that the nexus between science and policymaking is, as you said, very complex, but also very rewarding because we now have so many scientific insights and we talk about climate change and we talk about planetary boundaries, but also we talk about uh, politics in general in terms of uh, new populism and uh, in terms of conspiracy theories. I mean, there are all kinds of things where science is needed. And it's very important that then what we know as kind of evidence-based insights are getting into the policy process. And then, of course, it's also very interesting to see what are the potential mechanisms and processes, uh, how to make best use of the scientific insight. It's not so that uh, scientists can tell politicians what to do. And of course, politicians wouldn't like that either, I mean, for good reason. But it's just one part of that politicians need to take into account, and that is, you know, giving some insight, what happens if I do A rather than B, and uh, what is likely to happen, what are the impacts, what are maybe the side effects of that I haven't thought about. And then I can make my own decision as a politician. And I need also to to think about, you know, who is my constituency, uh, what do I want to accomplish in all of this, um, what are my best chances and opportunities for getting reelected? They're all legitimate concerns that are not scientific in itself. So science is only one part, but if you ignore it, uh, you may be in deep trouble. Yeah, you say science is only one part, and which makes sense, but then it sounds like you have quite a broad understanding in mind of science and what it has to contribute. I don't just mean the linguistic difference between the narrow English meaning of the word science and the broader German meaning where Wissenschaft includes basically all branches of of research, including humanities and so on. But also, I mean, in terms of the areas where you see science being able to support 
politicians and policy decisions. I mean, you mentioned things that we tend to think of as very political objectives, like stemming the tide of populism, for instance. Yeah, sure. I mean, uh, the issue is that you know what science is trying to do in the very broad sense, so including humanities, including social sciences, is to find regular patterns of either causality or of functionality. That's basically what science is doing. I mean, it tells us something about what, in a specific context, actions will have what kind of impacts on different environments, natural environment, social environment, cultural environment. And that's also true when we look at what happens uh, in terms of uh, people who get information, let's say, about uh, uh, vaccination or about the war in Russia or whatever. And what does it do in their heads, in their minds? How do they process it? And uh, what is attractive, what's not so attractive for them? And can it be misjudged? And how are the structures of communication that assist, help, or promote even misunderstanding? And so with the fake news uh, context, anything of that, of course, something in which we can say a little bit about how that is structured, why it's attractive, what kind of people are feeling attracted to it, uh, and why. And can we do something about it in terms of you know, improving communication? That's all also science-based. It's not science-determined. I think that's very important. I mean, we don't know everything, and every individual is different. And so you know, science always has to typify to some extent. Uh, but getting these insights helps us a lot also in dealing with these kinds of phenomena. Right. So any domain where there is cause and effect to discover science can be helpful in deciding what to do. But that ends up being quite broad, like we just said. And then I wonder whether this sounds like a bit of a, a bit of a land grab for science. I mean, there's the, the tr- kind of traditional classical view of science advice, which is something like the politician faces a decision, they need some empirical information to make the decision, so they ask a scientist to, to fill the gap with, with facts, you know, sometimes called the gap-filling model or the knowledge deficit model. Now, that kind of model makes sense, it seems to me, when we're talking about one kind of question, like, I don't know, how much energy will this power plant generate in a week or whatever. But if we want science to help answer questions on broader and even more controversial issues, like achieving these political objectives, I guess we also need a broader model of how the science policy relationship works. It can't just be filling factual gaps. It's much broader. I mean, the truth speaks to power. I mean, that's a general traditional way of uh, thinking about policy advice. And there are two basic flaws to it. One is that, you know, uh, scientists say they have the truth and policymakers say we don't have the truth and we need it. Um, I think that's really much too simple. Um, What we can see is that science can have a specific aspect of the truth uh, systematic knowledge about cause-effect relationships, about functional relationships, and there they're better than anybody else. But there are other types of knowledge. There is anecdotal knowledge, there is tacit knowledge, there's experiential knowledge, and that cannot be really uh, framed in scientific models or in scientific narratives. And so as a policymaker, it's very important to listen to different knowledge carriers. And I think one of the main thing is actually for people who study that policy science nexus is to say, you know, what are the best conditions that different knowledge types or different knowledge ingredients can come together in order to improve the decision making process. And, you know, we all know that good scientists have never been very good politicians, very rarely. And a good politician, usually have not been very good scientists either. So there is a reason 
that why there is a distinction between the two, uh, because our policymakers are very good if they are able to balance things. If they can uh, uh, identify different frames that they can say, okay, within this frame, it looks like this. Within this frame, it looks very different. Then, of course, I need to say, what are the impacts of these? I need some science to tell me that. But also, I have to see, you know, what are with my uh, you know, loyal supporters? Would they be uh, totally disturbed if I do X rather than Y? Um, do I have a tradition for this kind of policymaking? So there is a lot of other things to consider, and uh, scientists can only be of limited help there. Uh, but nevertheless, uh, you know, given the broad sense of science, because the world is becoming more complex, intuition alone is not enough. I think if things are simple, well, intuitive knowledge normally helps and it works. If things are getting complex, if you have, you know, multiple causal relationships that interact, you have promoter, you have moderator, all kinds of things, uh, you need very sophisticated models to get from A to B. Well, no politician have that in his or her intuition. I mean, that, or it would be just, you know, a random intuition that is fine. Uh, so then they need this kind of assistance. And, uh, it, but it could be natural science, it could be social science, it could be also the humanities, which are sometimes very important to understand context-driven developments. You know, a lot of natural sciences, the context doesn't matter. I mean, the laws of thermodynamics uh, do uh, apply for the whole universe. Now, many of the social laws do not apply for the whole universe. They apply only in specific contexts of time and space. And that is very often the humanities that tell you something about the cultural background in which things evolve. And that also is very important, very often for policymakers to see, you know, in which context do I actually place my policy. All right. That gives us a lot of interesting things to, to chew over. So thank you. Um, we'll come on to these questions of complexity and framing and context for sure. But I want to ask something about where you started there, which is this point that science doesn't have all the answers and what that means exactly. So I think there's an easy way to understand that, which is just to accept that science hasn't found out all its answers yet. Right. We haven't done every experiment. We haven't looked in every corner yet. But in principle, we could. So in that case, there are gaps to fill, but science could fill them. It just hasn't done it yet. But then I gather from what you just said that, that this isn't the case, or this isn't the only constraint. You also suggested, I think, and it sounds familiar from other conversations I've had on this podcast, that science is a good source of knowledge only in one domain. You said where we have systematic causes and effects. And there are other domains of knowledge which science doesn't touch and kind of can't in principle. So anecdotal uh, cultural, uh, I think you mentioned experiential knowledge. Am I right so far? Yes. Okay, great. But then did you also go on to say that when it comes to reconciling these different domains, science has some kind of special role? So science is not a universal source of knowledge, but it is. Uh, it does have a kind of privileged role in bringing together various other sources of knowledge. Well, I think what science can do is uh, to understand what kind of impacts these domains might have, what different frames might have. But they're very poor in constructing these frames. So as th if you think about a speechwriter, a very famous politician, if that's a scientist, well, probably the speech will not go very well. <laughs> and uh, so the speechwriters are very often artists. They're very often people who have, you know, a very good uh, talent in writing wonderful narratives. Uh, now, these people also need to know about science because if they make some factual 
claims in those narratives, they should be correct. Uh, but definitely making these narratives uh, is something that science cannot really help. Even the humanities, even if you have you know, a degree in, in German or in English or in Spanish literature, it doesn't mean you can write good literature. So in that sense, I think it's very important to see you know, what each um, a group can really contribute to the discourse. And science can really include things like you know, how things are related to each other. That's really something that science can do very well, factual relationships between phenomena. And, uh, and they can be causal, they can be functional, they can even be symbolic sometimes. So then we get back into social science, humanities, philosophy, very often a symbolic connotation. But uh, it's very important that that kind of relationship and how to describe that relationship as accurately as possible. That's something that science can do. But designing something is something else. I mean, that you need creativity. You need you know, a static kind of mind. Uh, you need to know uh, how things become convincible. Uh, all of that is much more an art than it is a science. And I think for politicians, they need to have both. They have to meet some artistic quality, some you know, way of uh, convincing, of charisma. Uh, but also uh, to be sure that they, you know, control whatever they think in terms of uh, potential impacts. Okay, interesting. So do you think this kind of uh, complexity is well understood by, well, by politicians, but also by scientists? Well, I mean, uh, some do, others do not. I mean, that's the usual thing. So we very often see there's a lot of hard scientists. You know, the world of a physicist is, you know, the world of physics. And everything what he sees, a tree or anything else, is a physical entity. And he can see all the things that, you know, a physicist would see in a, in a tree. A chemist would see it a little bit differently. And uh, I'd say a, a literature scholar would see in it, you know, a poetry of a tree. And uh, a biologist would see, you know, the, the biological level of it. And so you can see that each, let's say, phenomenon that we look at looks very differently from the kind of discipline that I look at it. And if I feel that my discipline covers everything, then it's very difficult to do policy advice because, you know, you can say, well, I know the tree from the root to the last leaf. And, you know, if you do anything else than what I advise you, you're wrong. And, and I think that's a problematic attitude. Uh, if you have what would say a kind of a modesty in your own approach is that, well, from a physical position, this is what I see in the tree, but I can also acknowledge from a chemical position, I see something else. From a legal position, I ask you who owns the tree. From a um, symbolic is, you know, what kind of connotations people have with the tree. So uh, you see, depending on what we call a frame, how I look at it, things have a different characteristic and things have also, in a sense, uh, a different meaning to different people. And I think a good politician is able to integrate that. And so the scientific part is the one thing that he has to integrate, but it's not the only part. And sometimes politicians are not very much aware of it. Very often, specifically, people that are very knowledgeable and also famous in the hard sciences have sometimes a hard time acknowledging that too. Hmm. It sounds like a lot of responsibility is on the politician's shoulders to ask the right questions. Well, that's a very important element, and I think also that scientists can help uh, politicians to ask the right questions. So very often when I do policy consulting, I 
ask the politician, can we first work on the question that you would like to raise, rather than tell me your question, I'll give you the answer, but rather to saying, you know, what is it what you're really concerned about? Is the question what you raise the one that really addresses your concern? Really working on the question is, is, is real good and important work. Because once you have a, a good question where politicians say exactly that is what I need to know, then a good science advisor can say, okay, for that question now, we need some physical advice, we need some sociological advice, but we also need someone who has some experience with it. And we bring those three together and together we can provide you with you know, a good answer. Hmm. So in that situation, the job of the science advisor can be to help the policymaker as it were, see the contours of their problem to understand what decision they actually face rather than, or at least long before, they come to actually try to solve the problem. Yeah, no, I think that's true. I think um, defining the problem is not a trivial task. And when we, we talk about problem, the problem is something that we feel needs attention and probably action. Otherwise, it would be a problem. Millions of things could be problems. So you have to have a selection of problems and you have to make sure why do you feel that that's a problem and not just something to tolerate? And, and if you ask these questions, it's very often the politicians say, well, what do you mean? I mean, well, we know what the problem is. But then if you deep digger, they start to think about, yeah, why is it really problematic? Um, and what is the essence of the problem? Why am I concerned? What is the issue there? And, uh, and very many policy issues that we deal with uh, when we look back and to say, well, what was really the nucleus of this? Why do we think it's a problem? And do everybody think that's a problem or not? I mean, some people benefit from problems. So uh, you get the distribution of problems over space, over time, over different populations. Then, you know, if you specify the question a little more and get a good discussion about this, uh, I would still think then it's good to also to come to a solution because in the end, we need to act. Uh, so just enlightenment alone doesn't help. But a good enlightenment is already, let's say, 50% of the solution. Yeah. Well, this sounds to me like this is the, the kind of role that might be taken in a work setting by an expert moderator or facilitator. Or in another context, a therapist, right? So talking through and understanding and categorizing and defining the issues. In any case, the idea is that the advisor's expertise here isn't subject knowledge. It consists more of like skilled elicitation rather than bringing new information to the table. Yeah. I, I sometimes call this a catalytic function of science advisors. Uh, you know, a catalyst is uh, a, a substance that helps uh, bringing things together that would not otherwise get combined. And so the catalyst is there to make sure that the kind of knowledge that's out there comes together to form something that is helpful. And for that to happen, first you need to have a very good definition, description of what you need to know. And secondly, if you know what you need to know, you have to find out who are the people, the institutions, the sources that can help you to resolve the issue. Again, you need a kind of an architect or a conductor, maybe that's a better image here, a conductor that could tell you, okay, for this thing, we need the violinist and we need a percussionist and we need a cellist, and we can get a good melody out of that. Uh, for this, we actually need some more flutes or something else. So um, 
and and they have to work together. I mean, if they all play their own spiel, then you know they don't have a very good uh, symphony. So it needs to work together. Even everybody plays the instrument that has a specific sound, a specific uh, kind of uh, frame behind it. Right, yeah. And this is a good analogy also because it brings out what I was suggesting a minute ago, which is that the conductor doesn't need to play any of those instruments. No, it doesn't have to play it, but he should have a, a crude understanding of, for example, what a flute can play. I mean, you know, if you say, okay, please play the big C or whatever, uh, and the flute says, well, sorry, that's out of my range, <laughs> that's not a very good conductor. And so the conductor does not have to be an expert in all of these instruments. Nobody is. I mean, no conductor is. Normally, a conductor plays one, two, or three instruments, but uh, he or she cannot be an expert in all of these. But he can still know what each instrument can deliver and can contribute to the concert. So that's a really important element. And I think that's where I feel that's the ideal catalyst for uh, organizing and facilitating this kind of interchange between policymakers and science. Hmm. I'm fascinated by this vision of a science advisor with a very different role from a scientist. Yes. Yeah. I want to go back now to a point you raised a little while back about complexity, because I know you've written a lot specifically about complexity and these particular complex situations, which are rather wonderfully called wicked problems. What's wicked about these particular problems? Well, wicked problems are problems where uh, the problems themselves have such a degree of complexity that uh, a simple solution, even a fairly sophisticated solution, would not give sufficient justice to the type of problem. And uh, the other element of the wicked problem is that uh, conventional science is not able to fully characterize the various ingredients of a wicked problem. You always have some black box in there uh, where you say, well, you know, I, I know some of the characteristics, but I don't know all of them. It's like a black hole. I mean, we've never been into a black hole because that would be gone, uh, but we can watch the outside, the surface of the black hole, and from that we can make um, inferential judgments about what might be inside. And I think that's a very good image also for a wicked problem. A wicked problem is one where we don't understand all the causal functional relationships within that kind of uh, wicked problem space, but we do know that it has this kind of impacts, and we do know that uh, we can influence it to some extent, but we can never know exactly what all the consequences will be if we intervene. Ah, so we don't understand it yet, or we can never understand it? Well, that's a debate. I mean, uh, the one thing is, and I think that we have truly stochastic uh, phenomena on Earth, that means that there's not a causal relationship between A and B, but only a, a stochastic statistical relationship. And that that's not a problem of our knowledge. It's a genuine characteristic of the physics. And of course, there's a debate on that. I mean, if, you know, uh, quantum physics, of course, is, is one uh, element there, but it's not just there. It's uh, something where you can see uh, if all conditions are equal, if you do A, sometimes you observe B, sometimes you have C, sometimes you observe D, and you cannot tell whether there are different conditions. So there are just variations uh, in a causal structure, um, independent of intervening variables. 
And uh, if that's the case, then, of course, uh, you know, we can still say E is absurd. We'll never observe E. And we can very often even assign probabilities and say, if we do A, there's a probability of 60% that B is happening. There's a probability of 20% that D is happening. But there's also a probability of 5% for C, D, and E. So there, there's this kind of stochastic relationship is something that for scientists is also very often difficult to uh, consider. And so some philosophers say it's just that we don't know all the context conditions. And so that's, if we knew all the context conditions, then we would have full causality. Uh, but I'm personally convinced that that's not true, that you know, nature can be stochastic and that there's not always full causality in things. And that means it's much more complicated, uh, not just complex, it's also complicated because anytime you do A, you can expect not just B or C, but it was with D and E with different probabilities, and they again have a causal stochastic relationship with other things, with alpha, beta, gamma or something, and then it gets then really messy. And that, I think, is a specific sign of uh, wicked problems, that if you look at the kind of causal or functional structuring, uh, you get a typical spaghetti picture, you know, with millions of spaghettis. Nobody can follow all of them. But somehow, you know, even if you know there are just a, a rough estimation, you can still influence it. It's not something where you could say, well, there's nothing you can do about it. Uh, you can still influence many of them, but you're not quite sure what you're doing and why things work. Or why they don't work, because you don't know all these kind of uh, interrelations within that wicked problem space. How does a policymaker begin to address those kind of situations? Or how does a science advisor help them? Well, I think the, the main thing, again, is uh, to ask the right question. So the policymaker is saying, I, no, I have this wicked problem. Uh, can you tell me how to resolve it? And I say, well, no. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and I say, so why is it bothering you? And uh, are you willing to experiment with it? Can you afford to experiment with it? You know, it's some very different questions. And, uh, and then, of course, we can see, you know, and I can say, you know, on the, let's say on the financial system, you know, we have these kind of discussions, you know. Well, it's a very complex system. And it's a big problem. We don't exactly know how all these financial streams work with each other, but we know we can influence them. So if we ask all the banks just to give out the money they have, well, 90% of all the problems of the financial system would be gone, but we couldn't invest anything anymore. <laughs> so, you know, there's a big benefit loss there. So the issue is how much of the benefits are you willing to sacrifice for more security? That's are then questions that you can really address. Uh, uh, even if you don't know all the ways it works, but you know, if you increase the security of the banks uh, and their assets, you know, your risks are going down. But it's not that you understand the financial system. I think nobody really understands it. And though we have a lot of other natural phenomena, I think you know we're pretty good into climate change and how what it does. But really understanding all the interactions between the clouds, between the Albedo effects, between you know all these millions of moderators, I don't think even the best model cannot do this. It's simplified, but nevertheless, they work for specific questions. Yeah. You were bringing in the elements of values, the policymakers' values. So it's not just a case of, here's a big problem, please tell me how to solve it. Because you have to also ask, what do you want the solution to look like? What's on the table? What's off the table? As you said, how do you value security of the banks, for instance, versus the risks that allow you to invest? 
I'm interested in how much of that kind of value element you think can be kept separate from the evidence and, and, and therefore when we come to design the scientific advice mechanisms kept separate from the evidence gathering process. Yeah, well, I mean, uh, there are good arguments for this kind of uh, decisionistic model has been called. Uh, the decisionistic model says, okay, we can distinguish between factual impacts and the evaluation of these impacts according to the values that people have. And, you know, everyday experience will show that. That's true. So I can say, well, uh, if I buy some shoes in a shoe store, uh, or let's say having the option to buy it in a shoe store or to do it uh, as an online uh, merchant, you know, you have pros and cons. And, and a scientist can say, if you go in a shoe store, you can actually test your shoes, but you have a limited selection. If you go on online, you have a very wide selection, but it's also a probability that the shoe will not fit. And you have to send it back, which is a nuisance, and you have everything else. So that's a classic example. And you could say, well, that's what the scientist is doing. The politician says, I rather have a large variety, and I tolerate that I don't get a shoe that fits my size, and I can send it back and get a new one. Uh, so that's his value. So that's his preference in that sense. Right, which sounds like you can do these two things separately then. First get the facts, then apply the values. Well, the problem with this wicked problem is that uh, basically the consequences that you look at are already dependent on the values of the preferences of what you like to know. That makes it very difficult because I need to know a little bit about my wicked problem in order to ask the right question and the question is always a reflecting of my values. So why do I care about this, not about something else? Uh, why do I want to know this and not something else? And that kind of combination, it's sometimes difficult to do with a decisionistic model. And I think that's one of its, uh, its problems. And very often we can see also in the EU, uh, where we have this differentiation between the payer giving their evidence and then uh, the chief scientific uh, officers and giving his recommendation, which is, of course, the decisionistic model, more or less, that interface is difficult to organize. And very often the science say, well, if I don't know the values, I can't give you the facts because <laughs> I have selective according to the facts. And the other way is to say, well, I can't give you the values before I know which value is touched by the facts. And so that kind of interlink needs to be organized one way or the other. You can still do the separation. It has also advantages because if people go into by just by values, they may just trying to finesse effects. Oh, uh, that's human. Uh, that's a confirmation bias. You know, if I want something to happen, I see all kinds of evidence that it does happen. And so separating this and saying, you know, I don't want to put my values up front, but just saying, I want to observe what happens independent of whether I like it or not, has its advantage. And that is, if you want to have evidence, you are, you are not value-free, but you have to put yourself in a position that desirability does not govern uh, your selection of evidence. In which case, what does this mean for how we should design science advice mechanisms? What characteristics should we be trying to build in uh, if we're facing these complex, uh, value-laden, wicked problems? Yeah, I think the first part that I would always, and I'm trying also to do that, is, as I said, specify the question. I mean, that you get the science advice, whatever conductor, to talk to the uh, politicians or to whoever wants to get advice and saying, you know, what is your question? What do you want? Uh, and then I 
usually have different you know, kind of functions. They can say, well, we just want to know more about the situation. Then enlightenment is fine. Giving politicians a little better feeling about the topic. So that's background knowledge. Very often they want instrumental advice, and then we need to be very careful if the bigger problem, instrumental advice would not work. Uh, very often they want uh, strategic advice. Strategic advice is we have different strategies, which one would work best, which one has the least side effects and so on. So that's something that is very often the case and that could be done with wicked problems, could also be done with more simple problems. That is, I think, the most common form of science advice. But then we can also have something we call co-creation, that scientists and uh, politicians sit together and to say, well, you know, we're facing this problem and let's try together to define what the problem actually is and then to think about what can we do and then we also include people who will be affected by our action. So it can be a very complex kind of uh, uh, issue of involving stakeholders, involving citizens, involving other people uh, outside of science when you develop options for actions or strategies, let's say, um, how do we get to um, a decarbonized economy? I mean, well, that's a, a fairly sophisticated, ambitious task. And now you need to see, um, you know, there are different scenarios that you can reach it. Each scenario has its impact. Each scenario has benefits and risks. And then you have to think about how to combine those. And then again, it's very often a value question, uh, which of the risk you're willing to tolerate and which you are not. And do you think that one science advice structure can serve all these functions? Or do we need different designs for different functions? Well, I think, you know, we cannot create millions of institutions for each uh, function. Uh, I think you need to have institutions that can do different functions, but we have different protocols for each. And, and I think that's very important to say, you know, if you have an enlightenment structure, the protocol is very different than if you have a strategic discourse or if you have a co-creation or something that I haven't mentioned is monitoring. So very often scientific advice is monitoring to see, you know, what are the actual outcomes of uh, policy decisions. And each of them need a different protocol of how to proceed, a different process architecture. And, and I think that's something where we still miss also a lot of good empirical data, which architecture is best suited for which kind of policy science nexus. You don't need to have, you know, five different advisory committees. Uh, but if the advisory committee comes together with a politician, the agenda on how to proceed differs depending on the function that you would like to uh, fulfill. Hmm. And everything we've said so far has kind of assumed good faith, or at least uh, matching objectives between the scientist and the politician. But you've also written a bit about other motivations or other objectives which either side might have in mind when they enter into the science advice process. Would you like to say a bit about that? Sure. I mean, and it's something that uh, I think it's not, we say, oh, well, there's malicious acts here, I, I wouldn't go that far. I mean, a lot of scientists have two self-interests in there. One is they want to be visible in the public and uh, they like to see themselves uh, in the newspapers and on TV and so on, because, you know, that serves their ego. And secondly is money. Uh, you know, if you convince a politician that this uh, research is so important, you get more money in the end. Uh, so there's also self-interest there. On the political side, it's the same thing. I mean, they know that if they go out and say, the best scientists in the world have told me to do that, that's a wonderful way to legitimize whatever I want to do. And we have seen you know, some studies in which uh, 
some politicians in Germany, I don't want to name them, they created one scientific advisory committee after another on the same topic until they heard something they liked. And then they could say, look, guys, we had just had this wonderful committee. It was the fifth or the sixth or the seventh committee. Uh, and they came up with a wonderful suggestion and uh, we'll do that. But the suggestion was there before the committees they have met. You know, they had this kind of legitimizing effect. So there is all kinds of ways to, uh, you know, to derail the process. I, I haven't seen very often that that is done extremely obviously or that is being done strongly deliberately. But there's always something in the back that the politician says, well, you know, oh, this guy is saying what I like. He's going to be on my next committee. <laughs> and so to get the selection bias uh, or a, a scientist saying, oh, this politician, uh, he's in the committee for research money. Uh, I will ask him what he really likes and I try and then I will tell them that that's scientifically exactly what science is telling. And then I get more money. And even if it's not done so bluntly, as I said, but in the back of the mind, uh, those kind of thoughts are definitely there. Yeah, I guess <laughs> human beings are human beings. Yeah, absolutely. Can we insulate against that at all? Well, I mean, uh, it's very good to make it uh, explicit at the beginning. So uh, some of the uh, advisory science council, which I was, and I had this kind of conducting role, uh, I said, well, you know, we all know that all scientists sitting here want to have more money. We all know that all the politicians who sit here uh, want to be reelected, and that's fine. Uh, just should be aware of it, but please put it on the back burner. And and that helps. <laughs> uh, don't say don't do it, you know, because then it said, well, why don't, should I get for more research money? It will help the world and so on. Uh, just say, be aware of it. Know it. Uh, politicians know it, that there's also, you know, there are people here that are not just giving advice. They also want to have more money and they want to make a reputation and so on. And on the other side, be sure these politicians do want to know the truth, but they have other concerns. They want to be reelected. They have a constituency and so on. Just be aware of that helps us all not to have wrong expectations. One last question, if I, if I may, and this is something I've asked a few different people. We've talked a lot about uh, both the complex nature of policy challenges and also, I guess, partly because of that, the complex nature of the relationship between policy and science and and between the, those who embody that relationship, so actual policymakers and actual scientists. My question is, is this new? Are we in like a unique place for some reason, which makes this the way things are? I don't know. Are our modern problems so complex or are our discourse so sophisticated that this is inevitable? Or is it really that things always used to be simple and now they're complicated? Or is it more that we've just learned to understand things at a more advanced level? Well, I think... Um expectations on both sides have become more realistic, but also I think that problems have become more sophisticated. So, <laughs> so it's both, uh, uh, you know, when I, I know when I started my career and, and I was in a natural science uh, lab and the director of the science lab said, oh, when we have a new insight, I call the prime minister and tell him that this is truth and he should do X, Y, Z. He had no problem with that. Nobody, I think, today would even say this, and even not think it. Uh, and we've seen in the, in the corona crisis that some of these you know, experts, virologists, had almost a similar role at the beginning of the pandemic. Uh, but nevertheless, they always said, no, this is my scientific opinion. There are other opinions. There's plurality there, and we should also consider other side effects. 
So I think that is now becoming, I think, more or less common knowledge among the scientists. Uh, more or less, I mean, some still believe they have the truth and they can just sell it. And others are saying, okay, you know, our knowledge is just as good as anybody else's, which is also not very helpful. But within that range, I think, um, you know, most scientists feel that, yes, they have an obligation. So it's not the Albany uh, Tower, you know, in which they want to be uh, working. But at the same time, they think they have something to contribute, but it's not... Uh, mandating what politicians actually do. And on the political side, I mean, we had in the beginning very often prejudice of those scientists just are, you know, uh, in different spheres. They don't understand the reality of politics. And again, I think that has changed. Uh, but uh, even with those changes, we can see that uh, it has become easier uh, between uh, policymakers and scientists because the problems have getting more complex, more sophisticated, uh, needing more inter and uh, transdisciplinary work. And that, of course, makes it not easier. Mm, so challenges still ahead. Well, that seems like a good place to leave it. But I do really want to thank you, uh, Professor Ortwin Ren, for this conversation and for the really wide range of insights that you've brought. I hope we can do it again sometime. Yeah, thanks, Toby. Yeah. The Science for Policy podcast is produced by SAPEA. We're a consortium of Europe's academies and learning societies, and we're part of the European Commission's scientific advice mechanism. We provide evidence and expertise to inform the work of the group of chief scientific advisors. SAPEA is funded by the EU's Horizon 2020 programme for research and innovation, and you can find lots more information about us and our work at sapea.info. Finally, the rather lovely cello music that's playing right now is performed by Elizaveta Sushchenko. So I shall shut up and let you enjoy the last few bars. Bye for now.